Hear the word of God from the last chapter of Jeremiah. Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 11 years. His mother's name was Hamutal, daughter of Jeremiah. She was from Libna. He did evil in the, Lord's, in the eyes of the Lord, just as Jehoiakim had done. It was because of the Lord's anger that all this happened to Jerusalem and Judah, and in the end, he thrust them from his presence. Now Zedekiah rebelled against the king of Babylon. So in the ninth year of Zedekiah's reign, on the tenth day of the tenth month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, marched against Jerusalem with his whole army. They encamped outside the city and built siege works all around it. The city was kept under siege until the eleventh year of King Zedekiah. By the ninth day of the fourth month, the famine in the city had become so severe that there was no food for the people to eat. Then the city wall was broken through, and the whole army fled. They left the city at night through the gate between the two walls near the king's garden, though the Babylonians were surrounding the city. They fled toward the Arabah, but the Babylonian army pursued King Zedekiah and overtook him in the plains of Jericho. All his soldiers were separated from him and scattered, and he was captured. He was taken to the king of Babylon at Riblah in the land of Hamath, where he pronounced sentence on him. There at Riblah, the king of Babylon killed the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes. He also killed all the officials of Judah. Then he put out Zedekiah's eyes, bound him with bronze shackles, and took him to Babylon, where he put him in prison till the day of his death. On the tenth day of the fifth month, in the nineteenth year of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, the Nebuchadnezzar commander of the imperial guard, who served the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem. He set fire to the temple of the Lord, the royal palace, and all the houses of Jerusalem. Every important building he burned down. The whole Babylonian army, under the commander of the imperial guard, broke down all the walls around Jerusalem. Nebuchadnezzar, the commander of the guard, carried into exile some of the poorest people and those who remained in the city, along with the rest of the craftsmen and those who had deserted the king, to the king of Babylon. But Nebuchadnezzar left behind the rest of the poorest people of the land to work the vineyards and fields. In the 37th year of the exile of Jehoiakim, king of jo Judah, in the year of Awal Marduk, became king of Babylon. On the 25th day of the 12th month, he released Jehoiakim, king of Judah, and freed him from prison. He spoke kindly to him and gave him a seat of honor higher than those of the other kings who were with him in Babylon. So Jehoiakim put aside his prison clothes and for the rest of his life ate regularly at the king's table. Day by day, the king of Babylon gave Jehoiakim a regular allowance as long as he lived till the day of his death. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, church. It is really good to be with you this morning, to be able to worship God together in this place, in freedom with our family. What a wonderful, joyous morning it is. So I had the honor of having some of our church, I'm going to call them our church matriarchs, over for dinner this past Friday night. We had a good time, 
talking about where everyone was from and learning about their families, their, their children, their grandchildren, and even their great-grandchildren. Great conversations, had a great time. We have some amazing people at Waypoint. Like, I want you guys to know that. There's some cool, incredible stories to hear. And so one of the things, just complete side note, I challenge you to do, talk to somebody and ask like, just some questions. And you realize, wow, what cool experiences you've had. So we've had a great time this past Friday night. We were sharing life, having a good time, laughing, eating some good food. I was gonna cook, but I ran out of time, so I ordered Maggiano's instead, it was delicious. <laughs> but one thing that really stuck out, and that whole evening, me and Gita talked about it afterwards, one thing that stuck out was that these amazing women of God love you guys. They love this church, and they're praying for you. Guys, do you understand what an amazing gift that is for us as a church? What a blessing it is. We have these amazing grandmothers and great-grandmothers, these matriarchs in our church who are praying for you consistently. What a gift. What a blessing. And I was just blown away by it. I was so encouraged by this past Friday night that I just was just moved to the point of tears thinking that in particular one woman said, this is where I want to serve the rest of my life. I want to serve the kids. I want to show the children that they're loved by God and I want to pray for this church body. What a gift that is. And I just wanted to say thank you to those. I'm not going to embarrass them by calling them out by name, but I'm going to look at them. I'm just kidding. <laughs> what a blessing it is that we have. And I want you to know that, church. Pastor Jim, who was our pastor emeritus here with us, who was actually one of the pastors of the original Journey Church, he organized a group that was praying for each of the members of Waypoint by name every week. I don't think you realize what a powerful gift that is. And I hope you do. I hope you see that. And one thing that I've seen as in somebody like a Pastor Jim who's walked with the Lord for this long amount of time is that one of the, the attributes, the fruit that I see most out of those who really walked well with the Lord is humble service. And that's what he exemplified. And that's what these incredible matriarchs have shown me this past Friday night. Those who know and walk well with the Lord, it overflows into humble service. So I just want to say thank you to them and teaching me so much. So I'm looking at them right now. Okay. Today's our last day in our series in the book of Jeremiah. And I know it was fast. We kind of flew through Jeremiah. And for those of you who don't know, Waypoint Church, we like to go through whole books. And we like to go often back and forth from the Old Testament to the New Testament so we get the whole context, the whole text of Scripture. And it's been a good time for us to spend with this Old Testament prophet. Um, this next week, we're going to start a quick little series on, like, the mission and vision of our church. And then in September, we're going to start on our, uh, in 2 Corinthians. And so I'm excited about where God's taking us, and I love the fact that we're in this prophet together. Jeremiah was often known in church history as the weeping prophet, the weeping prophet. And if you look at the life of Jeremiah, not just his words of prophecy, but actually his life, and we talked about this earlier in one of the earlier sermons I gave about he had this dark night of the soul. He experienced depression and hardship. He lived a life of 
honestly, a lot of suffering. He preached a message that was very poorly received. He was mocked. Even towards the end of his life, he was kidnapped and taken to a foreign land. Many historians believe that he was later stoned to death by Israelites while in exile. He had a rough go. Yes, he was a prophet of God and chosen by God to be his mouthpiece, but that didn't mean it led to an easy life or a life of blessing materially. You see, by measures of this world, he didn't live a good life, a life of material blessing. But Jeremiah had something. He had something that's so much more than just based on material blessings or what others culturally or in this world might see as a good life. He had something deeper, something greater, something that he infused throughout his whole book of prophecy. He had hope. Hope in something better than health and wealth. Now, hope is, is, is such a powerful word. When the New Testament talks about three things that remain, what's it say? It says there's remain faith, hope, and love. I mean, those are powerful concepts, faith, hope, and love. And on the same equivalent level, hope is on the same level as faith and love. Hope is powerful. There's an Emily Dickinson poem about hope where it calls it this feathered thing that perches on your soul and sings, even in the worst of gales. And some of you would be like, how do you know Emily Dickinson? Oh, I know Emily Dickinson. <laughs> Actually, I, I only know it because I dated a girl named Hope in high school, and I thought it would be really smooth if I knew a poem about hope. And... <laughs> so I'm just, I'm just being honest now. But hope is something that we are desperately in need of. Hope is powerful. And I love how the poem by Emily Dickinson, it, it, it perches on your soul and it sings in the fiercest of gales. In Man's Search for Meaning, psychiatrist and Holocaust survivor Viktor Frankl articulates the necessity of hope through his time spent as a prisoner at various concentration camps during World War II. And he shares this, this example of what it means to have hope and how hope makes a difference between life and death. He says, between Christmas... 1944 and New Year's, 1945, the camp sick ward experienced a death rate that was beyond all previous experience. And it wasn't due to food shortage or worse living conditions, but it happened because the majority of the prisoners had lived in the hope that they would be home by Christmas. When this hope was unmet, the prisoners found no reason to continue holding on, nothing to look forward to. They lost hope. And so he said, when a mind lets go, so does his body. Frankl says, hope, it appears, is capable of sustaining life. While every external factor may root against you, one single act of internal defiance can counteract it all. Hope, he says, is powerful indeed. Hope is powerful. But here's the problem. What is hope? What is the basis of hope? What are we hoping in? The prisoners hoped that they would be home by Christmas, but, that, but when that didn't happen, they lost it. They lost hope. What is the people of Jeremiah's hope? What are the Israelites hope to hope in? What do we put our hope in? What is the basis of our hope? What perches on our soul? When I was in high school, my freshman year, I think it was about my freshman year, my group of friends and I had this crush on this older girl. And it was sad, none of us actually knew who she was. She was just a random person that was like an older girl there. And we, we knew her name, but none of us have ever talked to her before. 
we just had a crush on her. We would just like judge our quality of our day if it was good or not, if we passed her by in the hall. We're like, it was a good day today. <laughs> Don't judge me. <laughs> it's sad, I know. But I still remember to this day, there was this one time, we ha- me and this girl happened to be standing next to each other, I think in the office somewhere, and we had a whole three-sentence conversation. Three sentences. I mean, it had to have been like 20 to 30 seconds long. It was deep and meaningful, a big deal. I came home, called all my friends up, and I said, guys, guys, guys. We talked. And I said, I quoted the movie Dumb and Dumb. I said, so you're telling me there's a chance. I had hope. And hope can motivate you. Hope can move you for a while. And oftentimes hope is found in the wrong things. That was the wrong thing to find hope in. Because I honestly was like, oh, she likes me now. Yeah. Now, mind you, I was a freshman. I think she was like a senior in high school. But still, it was close. <laughs> it was, it was going to happen. No, I'm just kidding. We put our hope in wrong things. Hope whether or not Christmas is going to come and I'm going to be rescued by then. Hope in that because I talked to a girl for th- three sentences that uh, she likes me. Hope in wrong things. And we look at the book of Jeremiah. We see up to this point, the Israelites are being condemned because they put their hope in the wrong things. In Israel, Jeremiah was calling them out because he said, you're putting your hope on the fact that there's a temple and you've offered some smoky sacrifices. Or you put your hope on these false gods. You put your hope in terrible religious practices. You put your hope that the temple still exists and you're surrounded by a wall in the city of Jerusalem. And you think you have hope. No. That is a wrong hope. It's a false hope. Jeremiah is saying that you're being condemned for it. God is calling you to relationship with him to find your hope in. But instead you're pursuing idols, thinking that they will satisfy, thinking that they will give you hope. Jeremiah earlier says, my people have committed two sins. They've made for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. In other words, you're placing your hope. What was water was the equivalent of the most important thing in life. They put their hope in things that were broken, that could hold no water. And Jeremiah's calling them over and over again. And they had hope that the land that they live in, the hope that the city that they have built will remain and be prosperous. Their hope was for the good life, but it was found in the wrong places, in the wrong sources. You see, hope is so important, but what's most important is what is your basis of your hope? And when we look at our lives look at, and look at the book of Jer- the Jeremiah, just like the Israelites, we have to ask the question, what is our hope? What is our basis of our hope? What do we put our hope in? And there are numerous sources of what we put our hope in in our culture today, isn't there? One common place we often find our hope is in our hard work and our good deeds. Our ability to work hard and say, I did good, I worked hard, so I should get good things. Right? We often put our hope in our own intelligence, our own abilities. I'm smart. I'm accomplished. I'm well-studied. I work hard. We put our hope in our finances or or our security in in the things that we have or the the amount in our bank account. We put our hope in so many things and, and we think, because I have these things, my life should be good or my life will be good or I'll be safe, I'll be secure or will that thing that I long for, that thing that I need will be there for me. But here's a question. Here's the, kind of the litmus test of where's the basis of your hope in life is what happens when something goes wrong? 
right? A good litmus test to see what is the basis of your hope in life is when you, what happens when something goes wrong. Like at the prisoners at the concentration camp, hope was built on something that didn't last. And because it didn't last, when it went wrong, because they were still in prison after Christmas, they lost all hope. When something goes wrong, when you lose your job, when you, you get sick, when you lose someone you love, do you lose hope? That's the litmus test. What are you placing your hope? Is it temporary? Is it eternal? Is it situational? Or is it forever? Jeremiah is calling the people of Israel throughout this whole book to put their hope in the promises of God. He's calling them out for placing their hope in the wrong places, for chasing idols that don't satisfy. So at the end of Jeremiah chapter 52, we see the book closing out with this prophecy of Jeremiah coming true. Nebuchadnezzar comes and Babylon conquers Jerusalem. The temple is torn apart, the precious metal stripped away, the people are exiled, walls are torn down, buildings are burned. And at the end of all this comes this little random little excerpt at the closing of chapter 52. It almost seems completely out of place, like a weird little epilogue that doesn't seem to fit with the rest of what's going on. It talks about this King Jehoiakim, this Israelite king who was, who was conquered by this foreign invading army. And for some reason, at the end of chapter 252, sometime after he's already been in exile, he's freed from prison. He's freed from prison. This is a person who probably shouldn't even be alive. It, it, it might be seem risky to leave a king of a conquered nation alive. So he probably shouldn't even be alive. But this king is not only alive, but after a while, he's freed from prison. But not only is he set free, he's given a seat of honor. He's taken out of prison clothing and given royal clothing. He's given an allowance. He's being treated incredibly well. And you're reading this section and you're thinking, huh? Why? Why should I care? What is, what's happening here? This doesn't fit. We just saw Israelite people and they were disobeying God and they're reaping the, the just desserts that they deserved for what their actions were. They were putting their hope in the wrong things. That was all stripped away from them. Then comes this little weird little bit about King Jehoshaphat. And why is this here? And let me tell you something. Hope may be hard to see at times, may be hard to find. And sometimes it might hit you and come from the most unexpected of places. You see, what Jeremiah is doing in this passage, it's also the, what the book of Kings does because it ends in the same way. Jeremiah is saying, hey, your city may be destroyed. You're in exile. But God has not forgotten his covenant. Jeremiah is saying the things you hoped in to provide the life that you wanted may be gone. The limits test happened to you and revealed that your basis of hope failed you. Your hope was misplaced. Your hope should be in the God of the covenant, the God of the promise. Because you see, King Jehokim is in the line of David. He's a descendant of the King David, who the messianic promise was given to. And later on, you see in the book of Matthew, King Jehokim is in the line of Jesus. God is literally saying in the book of Jeremiah at the very end, he's saying, all seems lost. You're in exile. The temple is broken. But remember, I gave you a promise of a new covenant. And at the end of this book, I'm telling you, this is how I'm going to fulfill it. 
even using a foreign invading army, this foreign nation, I'm going to use them to show favoritism to this line. I'm going to lift this line back up. I'm going to keep my promise that one day salvation will come and a king will come through the line of David. I will preserve this line even when everything else seems like it's against it. And hope is here. And hope is coming. And it may be hard to see, maybe hard to find, but it's there. God preserved the line. He made sure his promises came true, even though the people failed to live up to their end. The basis of hope for the Israelite people is not found in the temple or the city or the sacrifices or their own ability. Their hope should have come from the covenant faithfulness of God. Do you hear that? See, there's two points that I want us to truly understand about the basis of their hope and the basis of our hope. Number one, it comes in spite of our sin. Individually, King Jehoiakim was a sinner. He was not considered a good king. You know how when they went through the book list of kings, they say, and he did right in the eyes of God, or he did wrong in the eyes of God. There weren't many who did right. There were some, though, right? Josiah. Not many, though. Right? Most didn't. He was one of those that did not. He did not. He wasn't a good king. He was, he, but he still received favor. He was still given new clothes in a seat of honor. Corporately, the nation of Israel, the nation of Israel was still walking in sin. Even if they were in exile, they still didn't believe Jeremiah's message. They still weren't living for the good of the community. They weren't living in the promises of God. They were still committing sin. But in spite of our sin, God is faithful to his word. How some of you are sitting here and you may be, may be losing hope because you think of your own sin as it separates you from God. And you might think to yourself, you have no idea the things that I've done, the things that I think, and the way that I am. Some of you might be saying other things, you have no idea the things people have told me that I am. I've been called outcast, a criminal. I've been treated like somebody who didn't deserve to be able to or wasn't able to be in church or with good people. And you might think, I don't deserve this. My sin separates me. I don't deserve any blessing because of my sin. It's ever before me. The way David cries out in the book of Psalms, my sin is ever before me. And I'm saying to you that in spite of your sin, God keeps his promises. Your basis of hope is in spite of your sin. And I, want you, I don't want you to miss this. Guys, I want you to get this. It's like my sons coming to me. I want them to know. I want my sons to know. And I have two boys. And I want them to know that no matter what they do, no matter what they say, no matter what happens, I want them to know that they can always come to me. I want them to know that I'm going to love them in spite of their sin. Josiah and Hudson can come to me and say, Lawrence, I broke uh, that. They don't, they don't ever call me Lawrence. <laughs> that would be weird for me. <laughs> they say, Appa. And they say, Appa, I broke, I don't even have anything that precious, but if I did, so I broke everything that you own, or I did everything bad that I can think of. I'm trying to think of what a 10-year-old can do that's bad, but, a 9-year-old actually, but, yeah, drove my car, destroyed the house, broke all my golf clubs, everything. <laughs> And I think about this, and I just want them to know that, you know what, I could be upset, but no matter what, I will always love them. In spite of their sin, I want them to know that. I want them to come. And guys, I want you to hear this. I am an 
absolutely imperfect father. And if I desire my kids to do that, how much more does God? How much more will he move in spite of our sin? Because, at least number two, because our basis of hope is not based on whether or not we sin. It's based on God's faithfulness. Our basis of hope is found in God's faithfulness. All of it, all of it, his goodness, his faithfulness, who he is. Early in the book of Jeremiah, during Jeremiah's calling, Jeremiah tells God, he says, God, I can't do this. This is the Lawrence translation. He goes, God, are you kidding? Me, be your prophet? I can't do this. I can't be a prophet. It's not possible. And God's word to Jeremiah is this. He says, I have set you apart. I'll speak your words. It'll be my power. Throughout the whole book of the covenant, all throughout, it's always been, yes, here are the things I've called you to do. Here's the things that lead to a righteous life. I've set you apart. Live like this. But ultimately, it's always been the God of covenant promises who keeps his promises. In the book of Genesis, when the covenant was first given to Abraham, the recipient of the covenant promise, the one who says, I'll co commit to my end. And if I don't commit to my end, the weaker vessel, the weaker one who received the promise of the protector, the, the sovereign or the king or the emperor, that person is supposed to walk through split animal carcasses. And it's just walking through split animal carcasses that literally says, if I don't keep my promises, then let me be split open like this. You're with me so far. This is what happens in the covenant with Abraham. But what ends up happening, which is so weird, is that the one who walks through the animal carcass is not Abraham. Who is it? It was God. And God himself walked through. In other words, what God is saying, even though you can't keep your end of the covenant deal, I will still fulfill it. I will still fulfill it. Guys, our hope in the covenant, our hope in life, our basis of hope is founded on God and his faithfulness, not in our ability to stay true to it. And that's the crazy thing, isn't it? That's the thing that's so hard for us to, to, to understand, for us to grab a hold of, to, for us to really let sink in, because we're taught throughout our whole lives that everything happens because the basis of our relationship and how we act. You know, if we do good things, we act well to people, we, we work hard, we, we do everything right, then we get good things back. That's what we're taught. Every aspect of our life is taught that, right? And if we're, if we're mean to people, people will be mean back to us. And if we're nice to people, people will be nice back to us. And we're taught this constantly, like, if you do this, then this will happen. And we're taught that. So this whole concept is so difficult for us to grasp. This covenant relationship with God. But he says it out of his goodness. He chooses to love us, to give us his promises, and he's ultimately saved us and forgiven us of our sins because of who he is. Not because of who we are. Because of who he is, because of his goodness to love us. Not because we earned it, not because we did anything to deserve it, but instead because he chooses to love us and hope came. King Jehoiakim was set aside and later out of his line comes ultimate hope, came Jesus. So ultimately he's shown forever that the covenant promises were all fulfilled. He is our king who provided a way for us to know what true hope is. A touch over five years ago, Gina and I adopted Hudson. And when we chose to adopt him, we didn't make that choice because he was cute. He was super duper cute. <laughs> but that wasn't why we chose to adopt him. We didn't adopt him because he was smart or well-behaved boy. We didn't know any of that stuff. We didn't choose to adopt him because he was the most talented kid that's gonna one day be an Olympic star. 
We adopted Hudson because we chose to love him. We adopted Hudson because God first loved us and we want to pour out the love he's given us into someone else. We chose to love Hudson. We chose to pour our love out. He didn't earn it. He didn't do anything to deserve it, but we freely give it to him. I want you to hear this. My people, you are precious. You are cute. You are smart. You are talented. I believe that, but that's not why God chose you. Do you hear that? He chose you because he chose out of his heart, out of his goodness, out of his character to love you, to have relationship with you. Let that, it's not based because you're good or because you're pretty or because you did life well or because you're smart and you have incredible abilities. You may be all that stuff and you may not be. But let this be freeing to you. Let this be freeing to you. There's nothing you did to earn or deserve the love of God. He gives it because that's who he is. But there's, because of that, you can't lose it. Your hope is built on a solid rock of the goodness of God that cannot be taken away by the circumstances of this world. Once again, let this litmus test come. What happens when things go wrong? What happens now if you have this hope, if you believe that the goodness of God comes because the love of God is yours? What happens when you now know that you can be known and accepted? You didn't have to earn it. He just chooses to love you and you live in the promises of his word. And his word is this. Hear this. Don't miss this. Hear this. The word is this. This is the ultimate promise. This is what he tells you that he'll give you. He doesn't promise you that life will be easy. He doesn't promise you that you'll never have any troubles again. He doesn't promise that you'll never suffer. That's not at all the promise. Here's the promise. You ready? That he will be your God. That you won't be alone. That you will now be known and you will be loved and you have intimate relationship. Never a promise that you won't suffer. Never a promise that won't be trouble. It's a promise that God is your God. And the limits test comes when suffering comes, when, when death comes, when cancer comes, when job loss comes, when hurt comes, when troubles come. They cannot take that away. That forever, from now to eternity, you are known and you are loved. From now to eternity, you have relationship. From now to eternity, God is your God. That's the basis of our hope. That is the ultimate promise, that we are in relationship, that we have a father forever. I love how Jeremiah ends here. A hard book full of hard truths. Guys, we've lived through hard times. Haven't you? We've wept. We've wept through sickness and through hurt. But I have hope that cannot be taken away. In spite of our sin, based on the goodness of God. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for such incredible love. 
We thank you that we have this thing that perches on our soul and sings to the fiercest of all storms and gales through all of life's circumstances, through every litmus test that comes. God, this thing called a living hope, a hope that comes, that rests on the faithfulness of you. God, on your love and what you did through the work of your son, Jesus, that we have a hope that is secure, that cannot be shaken, and will not be taken away from us. We thank you. May we live in that hope. May it see us through the darkest of storms and the darkest of days till we're home with you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Waypoint, it's at this time in our service we're going to do communion. I just kept thinking about Romans 8, 24 and 25, as Lawrence was speaking. Paul says, for in this hope we were saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. And I just think about how easy it is to hope for what we can see. It's hard to do it for things we can't see. It requires patience, which is a good segue into communion. This is part of why we do this as a church body is to remember the death of Jesus Christ to have things in our rhythm of our church calendar and even our life to say, hold on, pause, life's crazy, it's hectic, things are going on. Jesus died on your behalf. His blood was shed. Let's remember that, let's celebrate. So that's that's why we do communion. Um, And in particular, on the first Sunday of the month, we typically do it the first and third Sunday. We want to kind of focus on a confession aspect of our time in communion, just a time where we can confess our sins to God uh, individually, but also corporately, and just acknowledge that we need his grace. We need his forgiveness. We need his, we need this table to happen in order for us to have a right relationship with him. I think about 1 John 1, 8 and 10, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. A lot of people stop there. It will keep going. Verse 10, if we say we do not sin, we make him a liar and his word does not abide in us. So I just think about we need to confess our sin. <laughs> we, we need to come because it, it, it makes us understand, God, you are in control Without you, without the sacrifice of Jesus, we have no hope. We have no hope of having a relationship with you. And we can just come and say, I need that. (laughs) So that is in part what we are going to do today. But this meal is just a meal for followers of Jesus. Again, for us to remember that we're part of the new covenant that we preached on three, four weeks ago in Jeremiah. That we are a new people, a part of his kingdom. And I'll read from 1 Corinthians 11. Paul says this, speaking about the Lord's Supper. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread, drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So at this time, I'll ask uh, our servers to come forward. And practically how this is going to happen, uh, in case you know, you're new or just need some instruction, 
is there will be four kind of stations with uh, two individuals at four different kind of spots throughout the room. Uh, we ask that you kind of exit through uh, the center of your aisles and then return through the outside of your aisles. And if you're kind of wondering, what does that mean? Just do what the person in front of you does, okay? It's, uh, it's, it's really not that complicated. It's kind of hard to explain. I thought about it for like 10 minutes this week. And I was like, how do I explain where people go? And then I came back to just do whatever the person in the front row does, and you'll probably be okay, okay? Um, all the crackers are gluten-free, and uh, the way practically we do this away point is one of our servers will hand you a cracker, and then you yourself will dip it into the juice. Yes, it's juice. And at that point, you can either take it right there, um, or you can take it back to your seat, spend some time in prayer. Um, there's no kind of right way to do this. Uh, but again, just encourage you to spend some time reflecting, spend some time confessing sin, spend some time reflecting on the death of Jesus. So I will pray for us, and then if you're kind of in the front of the rows, start the, the train, so to speak. Um, Father, thank you that your word says, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. Lord, thank you that you laid down your life, that we would be free. And Jesus, you, you were a man. You felt pain. You felt the nails in your hands. You felt the whip on your back. You felt the emotional toll of being abandoned. And Lord, you did that for us to give us a spot of redemption, to give us hope, to give us eternal life. Um, so God, just pray that even today we would remember that. We would reflect on that. And we would acknowledge how much we need you. Um, so Lord, thank you for this meal. That's that in Jesus' name.